You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Why is this happening? It's certainly not because American companies have been struggling overall and therefore haven't had the means to do better for those in their employ. Corporate profits have reached historic highs in recent years. A big part of the trouble is that this wealth has not been distributed like it was previously. Workers have been largely left out. Instead, the winners have been the fortunate few, investors who've reaped dividend increases and stock buybacks, as well as top corporate executives and others at the very high end of the pay scale. Most Americans, even those who work their tails off, can't count on the job market to give them the lift it once did. Some say that our current income inequality is no longer like the Roaring Twenties or even the Gilded Age, labor lawyer Thomas Gauguin has written. We're reaching inequality that we haven't known since feudalism. Charlemagne, not J.P. Morgan is the relevant comparison. Rick Wartzman is the director of the K.H. Moon Center for a Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute, a part of Claremont Graduate University. He also writes about work for Fortune magazine online. His books include Obscene the Extreme, The Burning and Banning of John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, The King of California, J.G. Boswell and the Making of a Secret American Empire, and a collection of magazine columns called What Would Drucker Do Now? His new book is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Thank you for joining me, Rick. Oh, thank you for having me. This book puts a story, follows the stories of four corporations, Eastman Kodak, Coca-Cola, General Motors, and General Electric over the last 100 years and traces the relationship between the employers and the employees and how that has changed. And for me, it was so riveting because at the beginning of this book, about 100 years ago, we see what is essentially the creation of the American dream. Mm -hmm. It's described, it's codified, and then it's is actually achieved. We then watch it unravel and destroyed until in the 21st century, somebody takes out a gun and shoots it dead (laughs) in the middle of New York and everybody says, yay. (laughs) There you go. That's right. Or someone shoots it dead and said, it doesn't matter if I shoot someone dead. They'll still vote for me. (laughs) (laughs) We're still voting for that, for this mindset. So talk about um, the beginning of this because the American dream had not really existed as we understood it in the last half of the 20th century until it was described and created by corporations and by corporate barons, essentially, for their own benefit early in the uh, 20th century. Yeah, it was for their benefit and, and really, you know, many people's benefits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my book opens uh, really in, in 1943 um, when a group of business leaders operating under uh, the rubric, an organization called the Committee for Economic Development, which is still around, by the way. It's now part of the conference board, but much less of an influential voice than it had uh, back in that uh, World War II era. And these were uh, leaders of, of major companies, including the four that you, you mentioned, GE, GM, Kodak, and Coca-Cola, who were really starting to plan for peace. They knew that the war would end. They knew that tens of millions of servicemen would come home. And they were really worried that unless they provided good jobs with good benefits and real security, that another depression might ensue. And that could lead to all kinds of things that they feared, like communism and socialism. And so they really took it upon themselves to try and uh, create good jobs, good benefits, real security. One of the things that really shocked me was how this worked out at the very beginning, uh, before the CED, each of these um, corporations um, had different CEOs, and they all had slightly different spins on it. But their take was that in order to keep good employees, it was 
part of a social contract between the company and the people it employed. Absolutely. Yeah. So there was a real mix of impulses Mm -hmm. for these corporate leaders. So some, in the case of Kodak most explicitly, um, they lavished good pay and perks on their employees. George Eastman, the founder of the company, uh, had all kinds of of wonderful things if, if you worked you know, at Kodak, he had uh, orchestras that would play music at lunchtime. They had a giant recreation center where you could bowl and do all kinds of sporting activities. They had traveling a traveling corps of nurses who would come and, and take care of you if you got sick. You know, they'd come to your house. Um, all, all kinds of, of incredible perks. I mean, it was a little bit like Google today, only it was, you know, a much earlier version. And, you know, and again, good, good pay. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and this was known as welfare capitalism. But one of the impulses for, for Kodak and others was they were trying to keep union organizers at bay. So in their case, they wanted to be generous so that uh, union organizers, labor organizers would never have a way in. Their workers would say, you know, why do we need these outsiders coming in? We already have it very good. Um, and it worked in, in Kodak's case. Uh, the company was never organized. And, and so that strategy worked. There were, there was also, there were, there were other impulses as well, however. So one is there was a, a, a notion among some that um, we needed to pay our people well so that there would be enough cash in their pockets to keep the consumer economy humming and growing. Um, there's, a, there's a great quote in the book, I think, from uh, Charlie Wilson, who was the president of General Electric in the, in the 1940s. And he said, how are they going to buy my refrigerators if we don't pay them enough wages to, to buy them with? And this was really, this is like the Henry Ford notion, right, where in the teens he famously raised his workers' pay from a dollar a day to $5 a day. And lo and behold, they could then buy cars. They could buy Fords. So there was this kind of virtuous cycle that was created. So that was also part of the, the logic. But the last thing I would say, and this was particularly true for this post-war era, immediately after World War II, was there was, a, there was also a more of a, of a we ethic than an I ethic. I think there was a feeling you could call it paternalism, but, but I think it was more than that. I think there were different cultural norms in America that were both reflected in corporate culture and magnified by corporate culture. And I think that people felt like we had come through the Great Depression and World War II together, and they really did see themselves all kind of uh, in the same boat. And I think we've really gotten away from that notion today. The CED in its inception seems uh, almost inconceivable today. Yes. So talk about how did it come into being in the first place? So the CED was uh, originally it grew out of a, a project that was at the Commerce Department um, in, in its very early incarnation. Um, but it was a group of uh, business leaders, uh, mostly kind of center left. Um, I think by today's standard, they'd be considered quite liberal business leaders. Um, who, again, were, were really concerned about what the post-war economy would look like if they didn't do a lot of planning. And so they stepped in to try and uh, help other businesses, including small and medium-sized business, better plan so that there would be enough job creation, sufficient job creation after the war. And 58 million jobs was what they calculated need to be created for these returning uh, soldiers and sailors and airmen. And if and again, there was real fear if they didn't do that, that all kinds of terrible things would happen. Socialism, communism. There, there's a, uh, a line from the chairman of Coca-Cola, Harrison Jones, who said that um, when we have a great unemployment wave, that becomes a seedbed for isms. <laughs> and so he was really concerned, as were the other leaders of the CED. And so they it was an era, and and it was an era that continued for a while. Of and they were men of of sort of statesmanlike businessmen, and they were very involved in public policy. And they took it upon themselves to, to again to step in and really try and do something here. One of the things that makes this book so powerful is the way you weave in individual stories of individual men and women throughout it. It it's really a compulsive kind of page turning read as we wait to see what is how the nation came from what seems like a really good state to where it is now. So talk about um, researching these people, uh, Marion Folsom, uh, mm-hmm. for example, Eastman Kodak. I mean, uh, there's Boulevard. <laughs> the, yeah, yes, <laughs> there yes. There are so yeah, many Lambo great... Yeah, Ware, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there, it, so, so look, I write narrative history, 
Um, and thank you very much for your kind words. I, you know, I really try and tell this story through character and scene mm -hmm. and, and talk about these larger forces that created the social compact between employer and employee. And then, as you say, sort of chronicle its unraveling, uh, really beginning in some ways in the late 50s and then really accelerating from the early 70s onward. And so... Uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time looking for the right characters, for the right scene to pro to propel the story forward. And I think like most good writing and particularly the writing of history, um, the real trick is what you leave out. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, I took seven <laughs> years researching this book and another, you know, took about eight years in, in all to, to come out by the time it you know worked its way through through my publisher. Um, so it's a long process. And I'd say I spent the first two years and this changed some. The writing always takes you to places you can't quite anticipate when you're mapping it out. But I spent two years mapping out the book. And I knew I didn't want to tell the, and I couldn't tell, I didn't want to tell the definitive stories of four companies, you know, their histories. That's just too much. So, you know, what, what labor strike do you care about? Which one do you not care about? Which character, which CEO do you spend a lot of time lingering on? Because he says something bigger versus, you know, trying to, again, chronicle every chief executive at every one of these companies. So there were a lot of decisions that I had to make along the way just to make the narrative stitched together right. What led you to choose the four companies that you did choose to tell this story? Yeah. So it's a great question. Originally, I had in mind that I was going to tell this same story this rise and fall of, of good jobs in America, or the rise and fall of the social contract between employer and employee through the lens of one company. And originally I was poking around, I spent a fair bit of time poking around into Hewlett Packard. I was gonna, it was gonna be a, a Hewlett Packard story because they illustrate many of the same uh, trends, really all the same big trends that these four do. And I took that idea to my publisher, this is my third book for public affairs, and they very wisely, the publisher said to me, you know, if you concentrate on one company, even if you have all these other big forces at work and you're trying to tell this bigger story, it's just going to read like an HP book, a Hewlett Packard book. It's going to it's just going to seem like that's what it is. And you need to tell m multiple stories of multiple companies. And then I was like, wow, how do I do that? I didn't want to do case studies. You know, it's not a business book in that way. And then I knew a little bit about the Committee for Economic Development. Just as a historian, I had read a bit about them in the past. Bob Reich and some of his work has referred to the CED and its story. And so I, I started to dive into that, just something, I don't know, my head led me there. And I realized it was really a great jumping off point to frame the book. And so I picked these four. There were about some 15 to 20 companies that were really instrumental in the founding of the Committee for Economic Development. Some of them have just disappeared. Many of them have disappeared, um, either through acquisition or going out of business. Others just didn't quite have the heft, and I just thought, wow, it's you know, General Motors, General Electric, Kodak, Coca-Cola. You cannot have four more iconic brands and names than that. And so they just became the obvious vehicle to tell the story. I think it's so interesting, the different kind of corporate cultures and the creation of this oxymoron, as it were, uh, of welfare capitalism. Welfare capitalism. In particular, I, I was interested in the way... Um, Coke, the 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 man who ran Coke. I mean, he was very aloof and and a kind of a distant. Other people were more down in the dirt. The Electric mm -hmm. Charlie and Engine Charlie, yes, <laughs> the two Charlie Wilsons. So, uh, talk about uh, cor uh, Coke's corporate culture. Yeah. So early on, I mean, it was really shaped, and for many years was shaped in large part by Robert Woodruff, who you mm -hmm. refer to, Bob Woodruff, who was known as the boss uh, throughout Coca-Cola. He was actually the, the chair of, I believe, the executive committee of, uh, of the Coca-Cola board, um, and that's how he wielded control of, of the company um, and uh, you know, controlled most of the stock, um, or at least for a long time, a, a good portion of the shares. And... Um, yeah, he was much more almost like a CEO you would think of uh, today. He ate in a private dining room, which he entered through a private elevator. Um, he was he was aloof. He didn't mingle much, certainly with the frontline sort of bottler level employees, those in the factory level who were who were actually bottling Coca Cola 
um, and drove the trucks that, that delivered it. Um, you know, he certainly did know his, his management ranks well and had a lot of interaction with them, but, you know, he didn't, he didn't get down to the front lines. Um, the person who did much more of that was this guy I referred to earlier named Harrison Jones, who was uh, the chairman of the company. And, um, and Harrison Jones was much more the guy to go out at the, into the bottling plants. And, and Coke has always had a, a sprawling network, and it was much bigger uh, back in the 20s and 30s and through the 50s and 60s even, of, of bottling plants. And that's really where its labor is employed. You know, Coca-Cola in Atlanta, the headquarters, is much more like a branding and an advertising agency um, with a secret formula for its <laughs> soda, um, its flagship soda. Uh, the, the kind of labor action and where most of the people in the system are actually employed is at the bottler level. And they've always been a mix of company-owned bottlers and then independent, almost franchisees. You know, um, one of the things that struck me was how generous some of these early corporate perks were and how these people came up out of nowhere, essentially offering things that we would die for today and that are, are largely have been largely been bargained away. So talk about the I mean, the largesse that it seems of these men in creating this uh, welfare capitalism right. was amazing. Well, it was. And, and you know, most importantly, um, welfare capitalism, I mean, again, and there were a lot of perks, like I said, Kodak, you know, famously with its orchestras and bowling alleys and things like that. But most important, it was compensation. Mm -hmm. It was pay and be and benefits, and both in terms of health care benefits, company provided health care benefits, and pensions. And when I say pensions, I'm not talking about the kind of gossamer thin 401ks that most of us have today. Um, these were defined benefit pension plans, which guaranteed you a set amount of income for the rest of your life once you retired. I mean, in a way, that to me was the ultimate expression of the social contract between employer and employee. It was built on an expectation of lifelong loyalty between the two parties. And you're right, all this built up in a, in a tremendous way, really from the late mid to late 40s all the way through the early 70s. Now, some look at this period, some historians, Mark Levinson, who wrote An Extraordinary Time, would be one, and, and others. And I subscribe to this to a great degree and say, look, that was a unique time in history and certainly in American history. We had, of course, just bombed our global competition to its knees in, in <laughs> Japan and Germany, right? Absolutely. And so American companies ended up supplying just an inordinate amount of the world's products, um, and so this was a tremendous boom time. And uh, at the same time, so, so American companies could be, afford to be generous in that way. And at the same time, you had the emergence of all these soldiers who came home. It was the baby boom and the rise of the great American middle class. And so it was just this incredible time. It was sort of the, the perfect storm of good things happening for corporate America. And they could afford to be uh, greatly generous. And, and indeed, they were. So you had this period where uh, pension coverage accelerated, healthcare benefits went from not being much available at all for workers, really, if you look in sort of the, even through the 30s, um, and then, you know, those things exploded. So I'll give you one concrete example, just in terms of basic medical coverage, um, in the 40s, something like, you know, 15 to 20 percent of workers would have had basic medical coverage that would go, exceed 70% by the 1970s. So you're talking about just an, a huge explosion. And at the same time, you had uh, incomes rising for, for all workers anyway, not so much people of color and women, and we can get to that, but, but really all boats were rising. And so it was a period where the rich were getting richer, but not disproportionately to everybody else. Through the 50s, 60s, 70s, everybody's boats were rising. One of the most uh, powerful things that were being given to American workers was completely intangible, which is a sense of security, mm. a sense that this job would last. If they decided to change jobs, that job would last. It was almost like marriage versus dating. <laughs> yeah, and certainly wasn't speed dating <laughs> if it was dating. So you're, you're absolutely right. So this, first of all, the word you hit is really important, this idea of security. Um, coming out of World War II, uh, if you look at polling and, and other kind of uh, historical research, 
security was almost, you know, almost even during the war, as much as peace was the thing that Americans yearned for, especially after the Great Depression, right? Mm. The word social security, right? The social security <laughs> program, there was a reason for that phrase. Americans, they talked about the need for security. And companies wanted to provide job security, good, stable employment. And for the most part, they did. Um, so first of all, there is a bit of a myth that uh, that people had lifelong employment. Actually, the survey research and, and other social science research that I've seen from the 50s, for example, shows that uh, you know it wasn't uncommon for for men, say, in their you know prime working age, to even have you know maybe eight, ten, twelve jobs over a career. So it wasn't unusual for people to move around, especially at the beginning. But then often they would settle into something, and you're right, be there for 25, 30, 35, 40 years. And if they were moving around at the beginning, it was more because they wanted to, not because they had to because of downsizing and other things. Until 1984, um, the Labor Department didn't even count what it now calls displaced workers. Okay, that, that wasn't even a notion. What would typically happen is even if people were laid off during a recession and auto workers and others in factories are sometimes furloughed because of seasonal fluctuations, mm -hmm. they would then have the expectation that they could get their job back unless they found something better. So this was more of a temporary furlough kind of a situation. And the term displaced worker didn't even really exist until the 1980s. I'm going to ratchet back in time a little bit and talk about something that's on all our minds now, which is the demise of centralized health care, mm. which happened as a result of the largesse of the corporations and and the battles of the AMA and uh, our president, who was to become President Reagan, yeah. was a leader uh, to battle the inclusion of medical benefits and Social Security. At the time, the corporations had everything, you know, said, we'll take care of it. But that was a, a, proved to be a very precarious bargain made with the American worker. Well, it was. So, yeah, the history of healthcare is fascinating. I mean, we do have this kind of weird system where most people in America uh, get their health care through their employer or through their spouse's employer. Um, and so I, I think, you know, for all the attention and rightfully that the you know demise of the ACA is getting that Obamacare is getting and it's a really important issue and I don't don't mean to make light of it I've I've marched uh, to preserve it I've I've petitioned to preserve it um, but if you look just at the numbers you have uh, and I'm not talking about the Medicaid expansion right which would about double this but something like 11 million or so Americans get their health insurance through these. Uh, ACA exchanges. 150 million Americans get coverage through uh, the workplace. So it's not even close. And that system, the 150 million system, has been slowly bleeding to death for 30 to 40 years. So you're right. Employers very early on, uh, along with unions, interestingly, mm -hmm. very early on, wanted they didn't want government involved in providing health coverage. They wanted to, companies wanted to have it be a, a benefit that they could offer to workers to attract good talent. This was especially true during World War II when the War Labor Board, a government entity, uh, held down wages. They didn't want wage inflation, so they held that down, but they allowed uh, benefits to improve. And so companies um, used health care benefits to start to attract uh, scarce uh, workers, uh, scarce talent. Um, labor unions early on, uh, particularly the, the craft unions of the old AFL, um, they wanted to uh, be the ones to win health care at the bargaining table or an improvement in wages that people could then go buy health care with. And so they didn't want the government to give it away. This would change ultimately and unions began to push for more national health uh, insurance. But early on, they didn't want it. And the doctor's lobby has always fought the government's intervention in the health system. So we ended up with this weird thing where your health care is, for most people, it's tethered to your place of employment. And as companies have cut back on benefits generally, um, people have, as I say, it's been slowly bleeding to death. So more and more costs have been shifted onto the shoulders of workers and their, and their families. You mentioned uh, the unions, and they played uh, they play a really interesting part. And I love the the characters of some of these people. Carrie, yeah. <laughs> Carrie versus Boulware, yeah, and these kind of like throwdowns. Uh, these, <laughs> these people were seriously 
they were uh, serious negotiators. There were no no slackers. No, the unions. So I spent quite a bit of time um, at the beginning of the book, in particular, uh, on kind of labor history and labor management history. And and it's for the reasons that you that you say the central reason that organized labor, big unions like the United Auto Workers led by Walter Ruther and the Electrical Workers led by Jim Carrey. Mm -hmm. These were titanic figures and organized labor was really important in the forging of the social contract between employer and employee. And not just for those who carried a union card, so not just for UAW members or electrical worker members or steel worker members or whatever the union was. But it's quite clear from the research that when we get to a point in the labor force where 25, 30, 35 percent of its height, when about a third of the workforce is unionized, our union members, there's a tremendous spillover effect um, that really helps lift everybody up, whether you carry a union card or not. And this is true. The spillover effect helps other blue collar workers. And it also helps white-collar workers. Often the benefits that white-collar workers receive, certainly at a company like General Motors, the biggest company in the the nation through much of the period I'm writing about, white-collar workers' benefits were patterned after what the UAW won at the bargaining table. And so unions were really important in making things good for all workers. We're now at a point where less than 7% of the private sector workforce in America is unionized. And so there is no real countervailing voice, countervailing force to corporate power anymore in the same way that there was in this post-war era. One of the things I thought was fascinating was the really interesting relationship between the unions and the isms yep. <laughs> and, and, the, and the, the corporations because the unions at first kind of – they were not disinterested and then they had to reject them. So talk about that kind of the shifts in that relationship. Yeah. So, I mean, so early early on, um, uh, particularly a number of the CIO unions, and this was before the merger of the AFL and CIO in 1955, um, the CIO unions in particular, a number of them were communist affiliated, sometimes openly so. Um, Walter Ruther early in his career and Jim Carrey probably to some degree, certainly Ruther, they were uh, affiliated uh, with um, known communists and socialists. Um, but again, this wasn't so weird in that time in America. I mean, there were many intellectuals. Communism, uh, at least for a time, and certainly socialism was seen as a, as a viable alternative, um, uh, certainly among a, a certain group in this country. Um, it, it, it didn't have the same stigma that it, that it does now, um, uh, for sure. Um, although there were obviously red scares and blacklists and, and ultimately all that you know, was, was washed away. Um, but in the case of both Jim Carrey and of the electrical workers and, and Walter Ruther, the auto workers, you know, at some point they decided that um, they didn't want to be affiliated with, with the communists and they both, uh, they, you know, all were, they were purged out of the union. In, in the case of the electrical workers, there was actually a split and the International Union of Electrical Workers uh, split apart, and Kerry led that group apart from uh, the UE, which was a communist-led union, and and uh, the communists were driven out of the auto workers. One of the really interesting events in this book was what you call the Detroit Treaty. <laughs> I yeah. really love this, the way yes. that you uh, turn history into these fascinating events. That I mean, the Detroit Treaty, you never heard of it, but it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. So this was in 1950, the Treaty of Detroit, which is uh, Fortune magazine famously dubbed it that. Um, so this was a, a really important agreement. Um, it was between General Motors, again, then the biggest employer in America, and the United Auto Workers. And there were a couple really significant things about it. One is that it was a five-year contract. So these were um, typically three-year contracts and, and in past history, sometimes even shorter contracts that had been Uh, negotiated uh, between union and employer. And this was a longer contract that brought a measure of kind of labor peace, industrial peace, and stability um, to the auto industry, okay? And uh, that was really really significant. Um, There were some other important things with it. Uh, This carried on actually a cost of living adjustment that helped workers that was actually first formed at GM and and between the GM and and the auto workers in 1948. And this continued that. 
um, and protected workers against the ravages of inflation. Um, so their pay would go up automatically if prices went up, the consumer price index went up, really important idea um, that ended up being a, a staple in many labor contracts and for many workers, and then would again uh, get washed out of many contracts over time as, as labor lost its bargaining power. Um, so it provided good things for workers, it provided stability for the, for the company, um, and it ushered in this era of labor peace across America. It's a very important symbol and a very important kind of precursor to a period that lasted about 10 years, maybe even a little bit less. Um, and companies seemed to actually like the stability. They could plan better if they knew there wasn't going to be a strike for five years. It was just uh, it sort of brought some rationality to making business decisions, and they seemed to like it. It also set up grievance procedures where workers could kind of air out their frustrations on the, from the shop floor, um, and a whole kind of umpiring system was set up to be able to work out these, these problems. Um, so it brought a lot of stability and good things. Ultimately, and even by the late 50s, most companies decided that the cost of unions just wasn't worth it. And they began to draw a harder and harder line against organized labor. And uh, I think ultimately ideology took over and uh, Unions over the years have certainly made a number of missteps on their own. There was some serious corruption issues through the 60s and, and later. But more than anything, unions and organized labor has been wiped out in this country because employers set their mind to do so. And they went after unions through means both legal and illegal. And that was a huge part of uh, dissolving the, the social contract. But yes. there were other drivers, too. Uh, as you point out, inflation, something that many people who are alive today probably don't remember yes. very well. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I certainly remember it. So talk Remember about, gas lines oh, and inflation? Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So talk about the import of inflation and, and how it helped change that contract as well. Sure. So- in the, early, in the early 1970s, this is when things really begin to unravel. Um, and so there were a whole bunch of problems. First of all, corporate America in this period when uh, it had, you know, again, bombed its global competition out of, out of existence or the U.S. military did and corporate America benefited. By the early 70s, Germany, Japan, but others as well, um, had sort of, you know, come off their knees and were beginning to uh, become major exporters, right? We began to see things like Japanese-made cars appear on U.S. roadways. Uh, and then, you know, slowly one in one industry after another, partly because American companies had gotten fat and lazy um, and had stopped investing in R&D, had stopped innovating, uh, the Japanese and Germans and others leapfrog past American companies. So that was all happening in the 70s. You also had um, a, uh, inf a period of huge inflation, uh, as you say. So inflation rates of, you know, high double digits and, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15 percent and, and, and so on. And you had, um, uh, you had a recession set in uh, actually back-to-back -back in the early 1970s, including a very deep recession in 1973-74. So it was kind of this perfect storm um, where workers really got crushed in a way that they hadn't um, since really the Great Depression. I mean, this was the deepest, most severe economic setback that the U.S. had had. Corporate America was not competing very well and was ill-prepared. And inflation made it really hard, and so it ended up in this terrible spiral where unions, which still had some clout, would push for higher wages so that they could, uh, their workers could keep up with rising prices. But then that would just make prices go up more, and it kind of became this conveyor belt. Um, and just higher prices were chasing higher wages, which were chasing higher prices, and so on. And it, it really became this, this, uh, this terrible thing. The combination of high unemployment from the recession and high inflation led to this terrible one-two punch, um, which became known as stagflation, um, this, this terrible combination of economic stagnation and inflation. And actually, it was so terrible that Arthur Oaken of the Brookings Institution, he created a new economic indicator. He actually added up the two, unemployment and inflation, and created something called the misery index. <laughs> and for workers, it was miserable indeed. You know, um, 
I was just thinking about the way this book is written, and one of the things that I just realized is that you have these four corporations. They're actually each corporation is a character, mm-hmm. and 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 in a sense, we see them as people. So this gets to this idea that we've recently had that corporations as people mm-hmm. have the right to free speech. Originally, those corporations started out as like generous grandfathers. <laughs> Oh, right. Yes. And and the evolution of them to turn into yeah. to, to miserly yeah, SLBs. deadbeat dads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so talk about create you know, the, the character yeah. arcs for each of these corporations. Yeah, so I mean it's a re- it's a really good point. So first of all I think I mean corporations are not people, but they're made <laughs> up of people. Right. And and corporations are, you know, not just things on, on you know, paper. They're made up of flesh and blood and and the leaders who drive them and drive decisions are human beings, and they're driven by a mix of impulses. So again, in these early years, and we mentioned Robert Woodruff at Coke with his private elevator, he was really the exception. I mean, somebody like Harrison Jones, his colleague, and others who ran these companies. For one thing, there just wasn't as much social distance between the executive suite and the shop floor. Um, I, I think that CEOs again, there was there was more of a we're all in this together kind of feeling. Um, they, you know, many of those people had served in World War II in one capacity or another. Some had even been CEOs and gone back to Washington to help with the war effort. They certainly had a feeling of connection with the frontline folks who had maybe been soldiers or sailors or whatever during the war. There was there was that feeling. It was striking. One of the early characters in the book mentioned a little bit is a guy named Phil Reed, who was the chairman of General Electric. Mm-hmm. And I remember going through his his files. They're they're archived in Wilmington, Delaware, um, at a business archive there. And um, when he became chairman of General Electric, he had been an attorney, uh, uh, like some kind of counsel at the company. And the number of letters he received from just regular factory workers who knew him saying, oh, I remember when you were the lawyer for the lamp division in, you know, wherever Ohio, and you used to come down and have lunch with us, that kind of a thing. There was clearly just an incredible connection between factory worker and executive. And I, you just don't really find that today. Um, and, and General Electric wasn't small then. It just, it just, you know, in terms of the number of people. Um, so, so there's just, there's a greater social distance. The biggest thing that has happened, though, so, so you said, as you mentioned, there are a number of forces that have kind of driven the unraveling of the social compact. The decline of unions is one. Mm. Trade and globalization, competition with low-wage countries is one. And particularly China's entry uh, into the World Trade Organization in 2001 has, has done a lot of damage to a lot of communities across this country. Donald Trump tapped into that, although I think he wrongly blamed NAFTA in a lot of ways. But but whatever, trade has certainly hurt a number of communities, there's no doubt, and left a lot of workers displaced, and we don't do a very good job of retraining them or providing wage insurance until they can get back on their feet or matching their skills with new jobs. We're, we're bad at all of that, and so communities are hurting, and we've seen the ripples of that in the opioid epidemic and other really you know, tragedies. Um, it's, been, it's been terrible. So trade and globalization. Automation and technology has been really important, right? What used to take in the 50s a thousand hands to make, now you can do with fewer than 200. And automation is only accelerating. So that's a powerful force. You know, it, it struck me that we always thought that robots would look like Robbie the robot yeah, yeah. or C3PO, but no, they're they look essentially like printing presses. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they look like they look like machines. Exactly. Yeah. The effect, but the effect of that has been tremendous. Mm. And then the last one, which really gets back to your your question before, is uh, we have corporate America's ethic has changed from one that had a stakeholder view in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, really through the 70s, -hmm. Um, meaning that CEOs very expressly, and it wasn't just rhetoric, they really felt a measure of responsibility to all of their stakeholders. So this meant their workers, the communities they operated in, their customers, and their shareholders. They talked about balancing the interests of all those different constituencies. There began to be a shift in ethic, and we can talk about why if you'd like, to a uh, maximize shareholder value mindset. Suddenly, shareholders, stock owners, were put above all these other groups. And when you explicitly do that, Guess what? All those other groups, including and maybe especially workers, uh, 
fall behind. They do worse. And that is very much what's happened. One of the things driving this maximizing shareholder value mindset is that CEO pay, their compensation, is now explicitly tied to stock price. So in the 1950s, 60s, again, even into the 70s, CEOs would get stock, they'd get stock options as part of their compensation. It was not unheard of. It was, it was always part of the package or typically part of the package. But it was a very small part of the package. Now, B company CEOs, anywhere depending on the numbers you look at, 50 to 80% of their pay is tied to stock. And so it is in their interest to drive up the stock price, often in the short term, and one of the ways you do that is everything else, Everything now looks like an expense. If you can cut costs, you can raise profits and, and make the stock shoot up. And employees are now seen as a cost, not as, some, not as something that you invest in, not as a stakeholder that you take care of on the same level as share, shareholders. And so this tying of CEO pay to, uh, to stock price has greatly, greatly accelerated the demise of the social contract. How did the shareholders get that uh, kind of power to to change that equation? So part of it is they they were you know they started to agitate originally you know they were called corporate raiders I think we now call them <laughs> activist share you know activist investors or you know shareholder activists I used to think of those as the nuns who showed up at uh, you know shareholder meetings to complain about you know human rights policy or something but you know now now they're activists but whatever you call them. They began to really pressure corporations. I mean, the nature of share ownership changed so that big institutions, um, some of them run by uh, some of these raiders, uh, control big blocks of stock. They have much more influence. Um, and they are pressuring companies to uh, raise stock price as quickly as possible. And they tend not to care a whole lot about workers. There are some exceptions, and there are some institutional investment firms that are urging uh, BlackRock is one that are urging companies to pay more attention to the long term, um, which means investing in R&D and innovation and in your employees. Um, but they are decidedly in the minority. Uh, you, We met, talked just a little bit earlier about how the rising tide lifted all moats, mostly white men. <laughs> right. Yep. So uh, talk about what was going on with women and people of color during this time. Uh, you talked about, you mentioned uh, share activist shareholders, and I was thinking yeah. of the people of Fight. Oh, yes, who, yeah. Who bought uh, shares yeah, Kodak in, share, in Kodak yeah. shares. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so I set one chapter in the book, as you know. Um, I, I talk about as people of color and women begin to enter the workforce in much greater numbers in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And I set the chapter largely around this um, uh, battle in Rochester that grew out of uh, the race riot that happened there in 1964, um, uh, one of a series of urban riots that, that happened in cities across the country, of course, in the 1960s. Rochester was one of the early ones. And uh, what it was really centered on was a feeling in the black community in Rochester that, again, they had been left behind, that um, there were no ways for them into uh, the middle class. Uh, this all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> that, um, uh, that, that they were being discriminated against. And in fact, they were. The level of discrimination, racism, sexism that I found at these four major companies was pretty astounding, even... Even you know, as a historian, I mean, when you really peeled it back and got into the detail of it, it was it was very very striking. Um, ultimately, you know, people of color would make some gains, women would make really tremendous gains, beginning really through the fifties and sixties and seventies. Their labor force participation rate would accelerate greatly, um, and uh, and and often now we have you know two income families we need women in the workplace to to make families function financially um so i document all of that but there's also no doubt that um so if, if you think of it that people of color and women sort of finally were admitted to the party uh you know by the late 60s maybe you know into the 70s in greater numbers um they got the worst seat which is to say they were often paid still badly because of sexism mm -hmm. and racism uh, and soon the party would come crashing down anyway. Uh, I'd like you to talk about uh, 
when things really came apart. And I think uh, Jack Welch is is a man who, you know, you can point a pretty good finger at point put him as you know the inception point or the deadly center of much of what uh, unfolded to follow. Right. There's no doubt. So Jack Welch, who became the CEO of General Electric in 1981. Um, uh, he he was an interest. He's an interesting character in terms of the labor force. So first of all, he did some arguably very good things. Mm-hmm. GE again, like many companies, had become kind of a stultifying bureaucracy, um, with layer upon layer of management and a lot of needless red tape. It was not innovating as well as it had historically. And he really set out to blow up that structure and, in a good way, turn GE into more of a meritocracy. And he put in place all kinds of systems so that wherever you fell on the organization chart, even if you were a frontline laborer, if you had a good idea, it could be heard, and that idea could find its way into action. That's really important. But at the same time, he also really uh, wanted to flatten the organization to speed up uh, the acceleration of ideas through the system, and that meant getting rid of lots and lots of people. And so, uh, you know, the best count I've seen is that through layoffs, but also attrition and other cuts under his time, and it was about a 20-year run that he was CEO, 19-year run, uh, GE, you know, he he let go 170,000 people one way or another. And before Jack Welch, and he earned the nickname Neutron Jack, which some of your <laughs> listeners will know because, you know, he, it was the idea was that um, only the buildings were left standing <laughs> after he was finished. All the people were gone. Um, before Welch, who was in many ways the most admired CEO of the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century anyway, um, you know, this kind of just massive downsizing was still still seen as pretty um, scandalous in America. And by the time he was done, Welch was no longer the exception. He had just been, at, as you say, kind of at the leading edge. Uh, I, at this point... Um, you talk about the when the jobless recovery <laughs> was born uh, during the Clinton years, yep. and you had mentioned NAFTA earlier. Uh, we're in theory renegotiating. <laughs> yes. Now, so talk about the Clinton years, the downsizing decade versus the roaring nineties. Yeah. So it's an interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting. I I struggled with this as a researcher to wrap mm-hmm. my head around it. So I talked to some. Economists who I really admire. So Jared Bernstein is one. He's a he's a friend. He he is uh, somebody. He was Joe Biden's chief economist at the White House and worked on Obama's. He was spearheaded Obama's task force on the middle class. Um, really smart guy and great guy. And he you know he says yeah look at all the job creation in the late nineties. It was you know it was tremendous and and Clinton had the longest economic expansion um, on record. Um, and so, you know, you look at that and you go, wow, the 90s, like what happened? It must have been tremendous. But at the same time, if you look, some call it the downsizing decade because there was still just a tremendous amount of churn. And even as lots of jobs were being created and the economy was uh, being expanded, there were still massive layoffs across the system. And so what it speaks to is this lack of security that most people now have. And that companies can turn on a dime and restructure and suddenly, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people are are out the door. And it kind of has given the economy, even during a time of economic expansion, a bit of a schizophrenic quality. Uh, that schizophrenic quality, I think, runs almost throughout this narrative. There are always countervailing forces. Yes. The, there's nothing really simple, is there? I mean, there's always somebody's going somebody's going forward, somebody's going backwards, and two people are going right and left simultaneously. Yeah, I I, I appreciate that you seem to appreciate that. History is messy, <laughs> and I'm not I'm not a polemicist. Mm-hmm. I I don't write in black and white. I write I don't pull any punches. I don't think, but I don't write. Uh, I write with a lot of gray because history is gray and messy, and you're right. Well, there's always forces and counterforces. I mean, one of the most interesting things I learned doing the research for this book is even in the 1950s, certainly by the late 1950s, the social contract at that point is still growing, which is to say um, pay is still improving across the labor force. Compensation uh, in terms of benefits is also still, benefits are also still rising. Job security is still strong. Unions in some ways are, are now at their height. And so you look at this as kind of the pinnacle. 
But I pin 1958 in my book and in the based on the research that I did mm -hmm. as when these counter forces begin to emerge and the undercurrents begin to move in the other direction. And I think we, we tend to see history as these in these neat blocks. Oh, it was all good until 1973, and then the recession and all went bad. Or it was all good, and then Ronald Reagan was elected, and then it all went bad. <laughs> History's not neat and tidy that way. Mm -mm. There's always major forces, but then these sort of undercurrents, countercurrents that begin to run in the other direction, building at the same time. And at some point, they swamp the other currents, and, and, and then new big trends emerge. The big trend of late has not been good news for employees. Um, do you see countercurrents happening now? Yeah. So first, I would say, you know, in some ways, it, it is a it is a good period for employees. We're, we're in again a maybe a, a paradoxical one, um, <laughs> which is to say, the unemployment rate is low, mm -hmm. right, four point four percent. And, uh, and it only even ticked up a little bit because more people came back into the workforce looking for jobs. But we also know there's a huge number, a historically you know, high number of part-time workers who wish they had full-time work. And there is a still a historically high number of people, particularly men in their prime working age, um, mid-20s to mid-50s, who are on the sidelines, who've just taken themselves out of the labor force altogether and are at least officially are not even looking for a job anymore. It's about 10% um, of, of that group, which is huge by historical standards. In the 50s, that would have been like 1% or 2%. So uh, in some ways, you know, again, unemployment rate is low, but it may be masking a lot of other bigger problems that are, that are happening. In terms of counterforces now, I, I, so I should say I don't think we're going to go back to this post-war golden age where all boats are necessarily rising. We have uh, full pensions again and uh, employers pay for most of our health care costs and uh, everything is great. But that doesn't mean we have to keep spiraling down the drain either. And I think there are some ways that we can begin to, to push back. Um, and I do see some hopeful trends emerging um, Particularly, I think CEOs are beginning to wake into the fact that unless they begin to restore trust in business again, the whole thing may unravel. The new book by Rick Wartzman is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Thank you for joining me, Rick. Thank you so much. That was fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.